Good morning. All right, today's reading is from Acts 4 and 5. Barnabas owned a field, sold it, brought the money, and placed it in the care and under the authority of the, of the apostles. However, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds from, from the safe. Oh, from the sale. He brought the rest and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Peter asked, Ananias, how is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by beholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? After you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? What made you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to other people but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone who heard this conversation was terrified. Some young men stood up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife entered, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband. Peter asked her, tell me, did you and your husband receive the price for the, le for the field? She responded, yes, that's the amount. He replied, how could you scheme with each other to challenge the Lord's spirit? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out too. At that very moment, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men entered and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her with her husband. Trepidation and dread seized the whole church and all who heard what had happened. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. They would come together regularly at Solomon's porch. No one from outside the church dare, dared to join them, even though the people spoke highly of them. Indeed, more and more believers in the Lord, large numbers of both men and women, were added to the church. As a result, they would even bring the sick out into the main streets and lay them on the cots and mats so that at, so that at least Peter's shadow could fall on some of them as he passed by. Even large numbers of persons from towns and around Jerusalem would gather, bringing the sick and those harassed by unclean spirits. Everyone was healed. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Kurt. All right, so we're going to talk about money today. That's why you come to church, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so thank you, everyone, for being here. My name is Brody. Um, it's really an honor to be able to uh, share this time with you. My wife Gwen and I have been coming to this church for about a year, almost a year, um, and I'm a student at Duke Divinity School, and in my studies, I have a particular focus and interest in theology and economics, which is, I think, why Chris invited me to preach on this passage, but I think also this is just a good candidate for a guest preacher, right? <laughs> there's, there's money, betrayal, church conflict, divine violence, so, I mean, if you're going to skip town and have someone else preach, this is the passage to do it on. So, maybe he's, maybe he's smarter than I am. <laughs> but, uh, in all seriousness, this, this is a passage that we don't often hear sermons on. It's not in the Revised Common Lectionary, which is the cycle of passages that a lot of churches use. And so, for churches that stick to the lectionary, they may never preach on this passage. And it makes sense to a certain degree. It's certainly a confusing text, 
it definitely seems to interrupt the narrative of, of a, a beautiful spirit-filled community and its auspicious beginnings throughout the book of Acts. So far in this book, we've seen the Holy Spirit give birth to a new world. I'm gonna take my mask off, is that all right? Yeah. We've seen the Holy Spirit, wow, that's so much better, give birth to a new world, a world in which beauty pops up in unexpected places. Um, we've seen the Holy Spirit poured out on people um, in Pentecost, which led to the inclusion of strangers and foreigners, sojourners into the church community. We've seen the healing of a man unable to walk when all he was asking for was a little money. And in the passage just before this, uh, which Kurt read for us, Barnabas, who would later become a companion of the Apostle Paul, he sells his property and gives the money to the apostles to be distributed freely to anyone who has need. We've seen a community formed around the proclaimed message of Christ's kingdom. And we've seen that kingdom unfold and bring with it beauty. But then there's this passage. Right? It's not about a spiritual awakening. It's, it's, not about, it's not about scores of people coming to new life in faith. It's not about healing. It's, it's about money. And I think in our minds, money doesn't make things beautiful. In fact, it, it often seems for many people like money is the thing that puts limits on beauty. Money is the thing that holds us back from creating a more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. When we dream and imagine possibilities for the future, we're inevitably asked, well, who's going to pay for it? All right, money seems to be the limiting factor in our search for beauty. But this story and the strangeness of it and the questions around it, it prompts us to stop and ask, how might money be brought into this project of beauty that the Holy Spirit is enacting? How might money be transformed in the new kingdom to create beauty and not to limit it? See, so far in the book of Acts, we've been the witness of a new world marked by life over death, abundance over scarcity, connection over isolation, and re resurrection over burial. This is a world in which the last is first and the poor are blessed and the meek inherit the earth. It's a world permeated by God's spirit. And this is the real world now. Right? We're, we're reading Acts during ordinary time, but we can't think of ordinary time as ordinary at all. Ordinary time is influenced by the resurrection and the incarnation of Christ. This is the real world now, and if that's true, then we won't be able to live under the same economy and the same value system that we inherited from the old world, the old ordinary. Most of the time when we think of our value system or our money or our economics, we just think of practicality and necessity. We don't see an opportunity for the glory of a new kind of beauty to emerge. But I think it's more possible than we may realize. I think of someone like Felipe Wichker, who I think we have a slide of. Yeah, that's Felipe. He founded an organization called the Community Purchasing Alliance. Um, and I think we have their logo as well. Um, this is an organization that gathers churches and nonprofits, organizations that are involved in beauty making, right? Improving the world, seeing the God's kingdom come more fully. And uh, he helps these organizations continue making beauty in the things that they wouldn't normally think of, like 
who is going to do the plumbing for your facility, who's going to give you internet, who's going to do your accounting, right? He helps these organizations find um, sustainable and minority-owned businesses to uh, renew the economy and make beauty in the mundane things. The Community Purchasing Alliance is seeing the boring day-to-day -day microeconomic decisions of various beauty-making organizations as an opportunity and not just a necessity. And so I just want us to imagine how possible it could be for these boring, necessary economic lives that we live to be beautiful and productive and spirit-filled and fruitful. But to get there, we need to do some processing first. We need to do some learning and some unlearning of the new kingdom's value system. For most of us, money is just a necessary evil or a limiting factor or an idol for which we sacrifice ourselves. We may not have learned how we can shift from the old value system to the new value system or from the currency of an old kingdom to the currency of the new one. But it's an important shift because that currency won't be accepted from the old kingdom for much longer. And in this passage, we see a couple who's struggling to come to terms with this, with this new reality and its currencies and its value systems. And so let's examine this text a little bit more closely. One of the first questions that many readers and commentators have when coming to this passage is, what exactly did Ananias and Sapphira do to deserve to die? It seems like a pretty extreme outcome of, of their actions. Most commentators assume that their death is divine violence, an act of judgment against them for wrongdoing. And this raises a lot of really important and confusing and difficult questions. What does it mean to be the victim of a God who created you, renewed you, loved you, and invited you into a new world? What does it mean to be a victim of the author of life? And I can't answer all of those questions, but I think even if we could, it wouldn't sufficiently resolve the issue. We'd be, we'd be left with so many more questions. Yes, in some sense, it, it seems like Ananias and Sapphira are, are victims of God and God's judgment. But before that, they'd fallen victim to myths that are so toxic that it would have killed them anyway. These myths are almost impossible to avoid, and we need to take them seriously. And we need to try not to convince ourselves that we could never be in the mind space of Ananias and Sapphira, right? That, that something like what they did could never happen to us, right? And that what killed Ananias and Sapphira isn't also coming for us. You see, what, what Ananias and Sapphira didn't realize is that our money itself is telling a story. It's telling a mythology about the way the world works and how reality is really shaped. Adam Smith is sometimes called the father of economics. Um, he's behind a lot of the ideas that we take for granted in modern economics, like specialization and trade. And it was his idea that everyone works for their own self-interest all of the time. Great stuff. But one thing that he did say is all money is a matter of belief. And I think we need to listen to him on that one 
and, and take that really seriously because embedded within our money and our economic systems are beliefs about how the world really works. And in this passage, we witness what happens when those assumptions about how the world really works collide with how the new world works, the world under the influence of the Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and I think most of us know that there are some myths around money. Maybe you heard growing up that, that money can't buy happiness. That's a relatively easy myth to spot, right? We're told that from a young age. Money can't buy happiness. And so it's easy to look at this passage and think, what were they thinking? Shouldn't they have known that extra money wouldn't have brought them more happiness? But this myth is a lot more alluring and tempting than we might have been told. And that's because it's not as false as we might have been told. There's a poet named Carmen Jimenez Smith who expresses this just so beautifully and convictingly when she writes, I'm driven by envy and gluttony, the desire to consume better than anyone else, but the pleasure is only half of what it should be. You see, money does buy happiness, but it's only ever half the happiness that we bargained for, so we end up returning for more. And in our society, money buys food and shelter and it's almost impossible to be happy without those things. And, and money also buys culture and music and art and celebration. All of these things are fundamentally a part of who we are as humans. And in an economy where money buys those things, money becomes a part fundamentally of who we are as humans. And it's why when someone manipulates us out of our money, we, we talk about getting ripped off. It's like a, a part of us. As close to us as a limb has been severed when someone manipulates us out of our money. And so that myth is a little bit more sticky than we maybe have heard. There's another myth that's more subtle, and that's the myth of scarcity, which which leads us to believe that we live in a world where more for you is less for me, and more for me is less for you. And that's true considering how we've designed our money. Right? If I have $1,000 and I give you $500, i am $500 poorer. It's just the truth of it. But that doesn't reflect the real world, the world that we live in. It, it doesn't reflect the abundance that God has created and recreated. For example, just put dollars aside. And imagine if I had 1,000 seeds for corn or grain or whatever. If I kept all of them, It wouldn't be in my best interest because what if a flood or a drought or um, I don't know heat comes and uh, destroys my crop then I have nothing so it's better for me to give 500 to you and you'll go across town and plant them in your own garden and then if my crops are destroyed you'll have plenty to share and if yours are destroyed I'll have plenty to share and so this myth of scarcity teaches us that there's not enough to go around and that we should hoard and collect things and keep things to ourselves. We saw this myth play out in uh, the early Christian community. Justin Farmer preached a few weeks ago and he talked about table fellowship, fellowship around a shared meal. And he pointed out how in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul addresses some wealthy churchgoers who would would eat so much at the meal that others would have none. 
And what's going on there is that these wealthy churchgoers would come early to the shared meal because they didn't have to work as late as the poor churchgoers did. And they would just chow down and scarf up as much food as they can. And then the poor, after their day's work, would come and have nothing. And so you can see how this myth of scarcity, the myth that there's not going to be enough to eat, I should eat everything, <laughs> creates scarcity. If the rich recognized that there was enough for everyone and that the meal would be more fulfilling and rich and beautiful if they could share it with everyone, then none of this would have happened. Scarcity in this way, it tends to be a self-fulfilling myth, which can make it even more dangerous because it can make the world seem like it's scarce. Right? If we believe the world is a place of scarcity over abundance, then we will build enormous silos and stockpiles and we'll hoard all the resources we can and therefore limit the resources available for everyone else. We've done this throughout human history with food and water. We did this with toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic. We've all, eaten. everyone in this room either couldn't get toilet paper or had way too much. <laughs> we have to admit it. We do this with money too. It, it collects in big piles controlled only by the most powerful and the most wealthy. And instead of circulating through the economy and making beautiful things as it passes from person to person, it just bounces from one wealthy pocket to the next, one hedge fund to the next, one Fortune 500 company to the next. And all of those transactions, all of that money bouncing from pocket to pocket, it makes economists think that we're doing great. Look at how much money is being moved throughout the economy. Right? Look, look how many transactions are happening. Meanwhile, many people in our country don't see any of that. Right? It's not creating beautiful things as it moves through the economy. Scarcity teaches us to hold tight to money instead of letting it loose to make things grow. The next myth that money tells us is the myth of separation. And this myth started a long, long time ago. But since we live in a world after the Enlightenment, after Adam Smith, in the world in which the triumph of individualism and the separated self has launched us into a more disconnected world, we're now a lot more vulnerable to this myth. And the myth of separation goes something like this. If something harmful happens to you, I can be unaffected. If something harmful happens to our land or our water or our air, I can be unaffected. My well-being is separate from yours and from the land that I live on. And this is, this is a false myth because of the new world of union in Christ that God's kingdom inaugurates. But it's also false just on a fundamentally biological level. Right? We're not disconnected from the land that we live on. In one moment... An oak garden tomato is attached to the ground, and in the next moment, it comes to compose part of our own body. And the line between the two is not as firm as we might think. If, if the oak garden is unhealthy, if Nan and Gwen aren't doing tireless work, and there's lots of other garden people, aren't doing tireless work to, to keep fruit and vegetables growing there, then we can't be thriving, we can't be healthy. Why should I think that if you're hurting, I can be thriving? This is true in a world of money. You can have a full bank account while mine is empty. 
but you can't have a full bowl while mine is empty. At least not for long. You'll need my help to fill your bowl. Right? From the planting, to the cultivating, to the farming, to the processing and distribution of food. If your bowl is empty while mine, or your bowl is full while mine remains empty, and you believe that your well-being is separate from mine, then it won't be long until your bowl's empty too. Right? We need the relational connectedness of, of union rather than separation. But money erases all of that connectedness. Consider another example. This one comes from um, a book by Charles Eisenstein called Sacred Economics. And he says, if I have 12 loaves of bread and you have none, then we both know that I can't eat 12 loaves of bread before they spoil, right? So it just makes sense that I would give you six of them on the expectation that the next time you have something to offer, you'll give it to me or to my community, my family. And see, what happens there is that there's... There's, a, there's an obligation, right? You, you owe yourself in some sense to me and my community, right? Because we have given something to you. And that connectedness builds community and trust and can build prosperity. But when we add money to this equation and you just pay me for the six loaves of bread, then the relational loose end is tied up and it gives you the illusion that you can just proceed with your life completely disconnected from me and my community and my people and the same for me to you and we can see um, the way that Ananias and Sapphira believed this myth think about what they were trying to do why would they keep part of the proceeds why would they want to have a big pile of cash lying around in the chapter just before this Acts chapter 4 we learned that this is a community where quote no one has need. And people are freely taking care of one another out of the abundance and generosity and interconnectedness of the community. A gift economy emerges. And all of these things were the natural economic implications of the gospel of Christ as it was proclaimed to that early church. But if Ananias and Sapphira were genuinely living into that community of love and gift and grace, what good would a pile of cash have done them? Right? Who needs money when needs are freely met by those who have something to give? And, and those who have something to give are expected to contribute in kind to whatever they can. What good is a bunch of cash? No one will accept it. No one will ask for it. No one will expect it. And Anais and Sapphira must be believing that if this world of abundance and generosity and trust, this certainly cannot be the real world. Right? They must be thinking, these hippies with their heads in the clouds, they've gone totally nuts. I like some of this Jesus stuff. I like this salvation stuff, so let's stay involved. But we better have a nest egg. We better have a lump of cash in case all of this falls apart. Right? They're believing that if the community dies, they can escape unharmed. They're believing that they can remain distanced, disconnected, and invulnerable that they can partake in the kingdom of God while keeping it at an arm's length. And now we, we can't blame Ananias and Sapphira too much for falling for these myths. Right? We can't convince ourselves that we wouldn't also. The new reality of the kingdom of God is honestly kind of too good to be true. 
right? It's really hard to believe. Really, there's enough to go around for everyone. We live in a world of abundance. It seems so distant from the fallen human societies that we seem to have built. And so Ananias and Sapphira were probably just watching out for themselves in case it didn't work out, right? It's the sensible thing to do. It probably really seemed like this wild bunch of Jesus people were just living with their heads in the clouds. And it would all fail when reality sets in. But for Barnabas, and for, for those who take the risk of vulnerability by putting their whole selves into the community, reality, the real world, is the world we see when our heads are in the clouds. For kingdom people, the moments of reality, the moments when the real world breaks in, are any moment when care and generosity and free giving shine through the facade of scarcity and separation. In God's kingdom, inaugurated at the resurrection of Christ and entrusted to us in the Holy Spirit, the heavens have come to earth. And those of us caught up in this kingdom, we don't have our heads in the clouds. We have the clouds in our heads as the heavens have come down. This is the new reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we're ready to see it, we'll see it changing hearts and minds and economies all around us. May we choose to live in the new real world, the world of abundance, unity, and hope. Let's pray. God, we have grown so tired of the strong grasp to which we hold on. We hold on to our resources. We hold on to our expectations. We hold on to our money. We hold on to our time as if it's going to all run out all of a sudden. God, I pray that the movement of your spirit would start to loosen the grasp of our hands. Help us learn to live in a kingdom where there's more than enough to go around, where you provide even for the birds of the air when two are sold for a penny. God, we pray that we will start to see a value system that we've never seen before, one where the poor are blessed, the meek inherit the earth. And God, as we study the book of Acts together and worship together, I pray that you will open us up to the beauty-making properties of the Holy Spirit all around us and let us become part of them. In Jesus' name, amen.